Welcome to Marvel by the Month, the podcast that takes you through the history of Marvel Comics one month at a time. In this episode, that month is July of 1967. My name's Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Rob, this is the start of our fifth season. Yes, four and a half seasons more than I thought we would pull off. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we've got uh, a lot of new beginnings to celebrate. Uh, we have... Uh, I, I'm not sure the current president knows it yet, but we have a new president elect, uh, which yeah. I think we're both extraordinarily excited about. I'm very re- relieved. I know when this comes out, we don't know, you know, by the time this comes out, we don't know what else will have been torn asunder in the interim. <laughs> but uh, so far, it's not, you know, the hellscape that it could be. 2020, not the hellscape it could be. There you go. <laughs> There's the tagline. <laughs> Um, we've got some uh, some promising vaccine news on the horizon. Yeah, I would like to podcast with you in person again. We haven't done that for two seasons now. So no, we <laughs> we, we haven't done that since we talked about the 1994 Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie, and, <laughs> and that summoned the curse of 2020. Yeah. Um, uh, but also, uh, we have a brand new guest joining us for the very first time, and he is someone uh, we've been hoping to get onto the show for a little while now. So this is very exciting. Um, he's the, uh, the writer of several Marvel titles, uh, including Spider-Man and the X-Men. Uh, he's a former head writer of the daily show with Jon Stewart and mystery science theater 3000, the revival. Um, and he's the co-host of, I am just going to come out and say it. My favorite podcast, uh, the flop house, Elliot Kalin. Thank you so much for joining us on Marvel by the month. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about it. And, uh, thank you for listening to the flop house. It is a show that. I know I enjoy, but I have never really understood what other people get out of it. And so <laughs> I just appreciate that you get something out of it. You know? I, I think we understand exactly how you feel. That is a, yeah. <laughs> I say that about this podcast all the time. So, uh, so Elliot, as a, as a comics writer, uh, you are responsible for what might be the most memed comics panel of the last 10 years. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's certainly in the top five, I think that the everything is fine dog in the in the office on fire <laughs> is probably number one. Uh, but yeah, the uh, I, there's a panel from uh, Spider Man the X Men number two, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. where Spider Man's talking to Sauron, and about every couple of weeks or so, I get tagged on Twitter because someone is telling someone else who tweeted it that I wrote it, and <laughs> it's like, so I mean, I can't. The only thing I could ask for is that the person who originally tweeted it would know who I was. But at this point, I'm sure it's been seen by more people on Twitter and the internet that ever, than ever read the original book. 
Yes. Know? Yeah. Well, it, and and uh, for those who uh, who may not have seen it, although I find it really <laughs> impossible that you could know this podcast and not be familiar with this, uh, <laughs> the the setup bit is that uh, Spider Man is saying to Sauron, we have to call him Sauron, right? The the Tolkien people don't like Sauron. Is that <laughs> is that the way that this worked out? Um, but uh, Spidey is saying, uh, you can rewrite DNA on the fly, and you're using it to turn people into dinosaurs. But with tech like that, you could cure cancer. And Sauron says, but I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs, <laughs> uh, which is it's just a brilliant uh, one-two bit. Um, what was it like <laughs> seeing that start to catch fire on the internet? It was very, uh, I think... Um What's the word? Like it, it, it helped renew my faith in myself because when I read it, uh, when, when I wrote it, when I read it, when I wrote it, I was like, I think this is a funny joke, but I can't explain why it's a funny joke. Like usually when I write a joke, I can kind of tell you the mechanics behind it. But with that one, it was, I was like, I don't know. This just seems like a funny thing to say. He's just being <laughs> honest about what he wants to do. And it's, and it really hit a chord with people and it was, and it made me feel like, okay, yes, I do. I, even if I don't know what I'm doing, I kind of know what I'm doing. And it's become a really good shorthand for any time like Elon Musk does something that is <laughs> dumb. Like when, when, when rich people are like, I'm going to finally shoot my boots into space instead of, you know, <laughs> giving people money to, for food, you know, they, but uh, it's a, uh, it's help. It feels good to have created something for one purpose and see it used for a more useful, relevant purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it was just good to, write a joke and have people think it's a funny joke, you know, because many times I write jokes and I'm like, and people don't think they're funny and they're like, and I'm like, I can prove to you mathematically why this is on paper, a funny joke, but this one, <laughs> it, it hits people the right way. So that's good. Yeah. I, I think one of my favorite things about it is that Spidey's the straight man in the gag, <laughs> which like that never happens in a, in a Spider-Man book. Um, and Sauron is not known for his comic chops, but in, <laughs> I, I gave him a couple lines in that book that I'm very, uh, I'm very happy. Like when he tells Stegron that he sounds like an effeminate snake, that's something that I was, <laughs> I was very happy with. I mean, it was the, the, my big accomplishment in that book was teaming up Sauron and Stegron, which I don't think had ever been done before, which is mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. They're the they're the two dinosaur bad guys in Marvel yeah. Comics. Like put them together. I mean, technically a pterosaur is not a dinosaur, but you know what I mean. And uh yeah. the <laughs> but to, that's and then that that line is this is the other one. But uh that if I if I if I try to be deep about it, I feel like the Spider-Man the X-Men book was about Spider-Man getting kind of woke about the problems mutants face. So that's just another place where he's learning that people don't think the same way he does. You know, yeah. you can't take it for granted yeah. that everyone's got the same philosophy as Spider-Man. Certainly not Sauron, a an energy vampire who turns into a Pteranodon man. So, you know, <laughs> this is a different worldview. He's got a different life, you know. Yes. Uh, and, and also, so I, I think that is, you know, one of your major uh, marks that you've left in the Marvel Universe. Uh, another one is uh, you, uh, you killed off one of the foundational characters uh, of the early Marvel age of comics. Uh, the, I'm talking, of course, of the legendary 1960s Human Torch adversary, the Asbestos Man. Yeah, I, I managed to bring him back for his second and last appearance in comics <laughs> after a 40-year absence. Was that an idea that you pitched to them? Uh, I, I can't imagine that they had big plans for Asbestos Man. Um, they uh, The way I remember it is... They asked me to do a Great Lakes Avengers story for that book. Shame. No, no. It was a Fear Itself. It was Fear Itself Homefront, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, this is it. I'm breaking out of the humor books and into the into the anthology uh, event tie-in books. And 
I can't remember if they gave me a list of possible villains or if I looked up a list of like villains that hadn't been around for a long time. I think they mm-hmm. gave me a list and I chose Asbestos Man off that. And it was like, they were like, Asbestos Man, he's only been in one issue. And I was like, well, yeah, there's, I instantly see what this guy's problem is, which is that he's dying because he's <laughs> been wearing asbestos for a long time. Um, and, you know, it was, it was sad to give him the, a lethal diagnosis. But uh, I have to say, my first draft of that script was a little too flippant with that character. And my editor came back to me and just told me to rewrite it. And I was able to find like a little more heart in it. And I was very happy that uh, that turnabout happened because it turned into a stronger story. The weird thing is, so with Spider-Man the X-Men, I wanted to change Shark Girl's name to Shark Woman. I wanted Spider-Man to inspire her to be like, what, you call yourself Spider-Man. I'm going to be Shark Woman, and I'm going to. And I wanted to make her more of a like stronger character because up until then she had had a big introduction in Wolverine and the X-Men, and then she just became one of those characters that hung out in the back of panels when they need a lot of students. And they said, "No, you can't make changes to the characters like that. That's too big a change." But as Bestless Man, they're like, "Go ahead, do it, whatever." And then <laughs> just kill that guy. <laughs> and uh, eventually, the only time I ever created a character for a Marvel comic, I killed him in the next panel. Which was uh, in a in a Spider Man Deadpool story I wrote. I cre- I came up with a guy a bag called the Stinger, who his costume has a big sword blade coming out of its butt, and he <laughs> and he he fences and and knocks a sword out of Deadpool's hand, and then Deadpool drowns him in the next panel. So they didn't. I guess they didn't. They didn't mind that. They didn't see too much uh, potential <laughs> in the character. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Um, well, y- you you are obviously a pretty big comics fan, um, and specifically a Marvel comics fan. Um, mm-hmm. Do you, do you remember how you became a comics reader, and and what what steered you toward Marvel? I so I was a like when I was a little kid, I was like an Archie comics reader, and for some reason, I had it in my mind that superhero comics were super violent. And I were too violent. I would say like they're too violent for me. I don't like them. And I, I was imagining that it was just like Superman ripping people's heads off and stuff like that. And like it was, it turns out they're not as violent as I thought they were. But uh, <laughs> they're still more violent than I want to show some of them to my kids now. But, but uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't until the Marvel series two trading cards came out in like 1991, I think it was 91 or 92, mm-hmm. and. They were all the rage one year at summer camp, and I just loved the looks of the characters and like the backstories of them. And I started reading Marvel comics about then, and just really fell into it. And as a kid who like didn't like reality very much, didn't feel very comfortable mm-hmm. in reality, it was really good to have this universe that I could really understand and come to know very well, so I could really feel like I owned a piece of it, you know, and. I don't know, and there's something about the Mar- how every Marvel character is so constantly in emotional distress that I really related to and still relate to, and especially that Spider-Man, who I think is the if there's two personas that I take as like my moral guideposts in life, it's Spider-Man and Abraham Lincoln, and Spider-Man is a character that to me is like has an ethic about how to live as a good person and is constantly struggling to express that ethic in a reality that makes it very difficult, that forces him to make hard choices and to sacrifice things in order to be the person that he wants to be. And I really relate to that. And DC characters, I just really couldn't get into. But the Marvel characters, they still totally speak to me. And by this point, it's like, you know, they're like family members that I've known for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I re- I just finished the other day with my my older son this big jigsaw puzzle that my wife got me where it's just random comic books 
stacked on top of each other. And it's the most random selection. And he'd be like, who's this character? And I'm like, that's Modam. That's the female version of Modoc that Captain America <laughs> fought when Mark Greenwald was writing the title. And then he's like, who's this DC, DC character? I'm like, don't know. Don't know. Don't care. Have no idea. Like, can't, don't recognize him. So it's just the, the Marvel characters just in my blood that way. Yeah, yeah. And and you mentioned that you've been reading some early Marvel comics uh, with your son, um, who's about almost seven years old. Yeah. Um, how is he responding to them? And, and what are some of your general impressions as you were visiting the Silver Age? Uh, it's funny. So he's really into the early X-Men comics, which oh, is cool. mm-hmm. funny to me because those comics were always ones that I found to be like a little bit weaker because mm-hmm. it was like they just weren't they just weren't putting the same energy into them. But the way that he's and he now thinks that Lucifer is like a major villain in the Marvel universe, you know, because they <laughs> they really build up Lucifer in those early X Men books. Like he's a big yeah. problem. And uh, but he, I think I'm, I have to talk to him about what he like connects to in it. He really wants. To, I think it's the fact that there's so many characters he really likes, yeah. and he can really know all of them and ask questions about them. And what do they do? What's this about? And we just before this. And the Lucifer book comes after – he had so many questions about the mimic, and I'm like – because that's the issue before. And I was like, let's not waste too much time on Calvin Rankin. Like this is not a character <laughs> we're going to – but there's the the two-parter with the that introduces the juggernaut where the first part of that is brilliant. It's just so yes. – it's so beautiful the way it's just this, this mysterious force that just won't stop coming. And the first three issues with the Sentinels where there's this, this similar sort of feeling of like the X-Men – really are not going to save the day until something out, you know, out of their control happens. And I'm wondering what he takes from it, because a lot of the early X-Men issues are the X-Men get involved in adventure, they run around falling over themselves, and then Professor Xavier saves the day at the end and is like, thank you, my X-Men, I'm glad you were here. And it's like, why? <laughs> like, what, why, why are you throwing these teenagers into battle when you can just go in with your brain and just fix the whole problem? It would make a... 20 page story, a two page story. <laughs> That's I guess, true. Is that, yeah. <laughs> but for a while we were, for a while we were reading the, like the, uh, original fantastic four comics and I was skipping around much more with him. Cause those I know better. And I was like, let's not worry about these ones. Let's get to black Panther. Like let's get to Galactus. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, there it's, I think he was a little overwhelmed by how much is going on in those books, you know, yeah. but yeah. the X-Men books, the stories he's, he's really getting into, um, and I want to read him Spider-Man books, but I realized we started doing it and I was like, Spider-Man spends a lot of time kicking guys in the face. And like, I kind of don't <laughs> want him. I don't want that to be what he's, what he's picking up is like, sometimes I'll get into problems and I'll have to kick a man in a suit in the face. <laughs> I wonder if the Fantastic Four thing, you know, with it feeling a little overwhelming, I distinctly remember when I was much younger seven, eight, nine years old, uh, I actually did not like Jack Kirby's artwork because I mm-hmm. found it really overwhelming. Um, and I, I found it like kind of ugly and just, I don't know, it, 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 uh, it was too much for me. So I totally, uh, I totally would believe that. Like it's, there's a, there's something really like powerful in a, um, almost in a hostile way about yeah. his art. Like mm-hmm. his art is so like, uh, not to jump into it too early, but like looking at the the Spider-Man issue that we looked at this month where it's John Romita and his art is so smooth and so comforting. And like, Mm -hmm. you can just like his, John Romita's art I find so beautiful. And it's like, you could look at it all day and your eyes are going to be like, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And when Jack (laughs) Kirby, as beautiful as his art is, your eyes are like, I need a break. Like I need a rest. Yeah. Um, well, we are really looking forward to uh, talking about some of the issues that came out in uh, July of 1967 with you. But first, as we always do, we're going to establish a little historical context for what was going on in the world in July of 67. 
So I will kick us off uh, this time with a little bit of news from uh, what's happening in China at the time. So we are in the middle of the Cultural Revolution, um, which is going great. Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, for some people, yeah, for some people, <laughs> very few people. Of uh, uh, July first, nineteen sixty-seven. Um, the People's Republic of China announced the ouster of President Liu Shaoqi, who at one time was expected to be the eventual successor of Mao Zedong. Uh, he had not been seen in public since 1966. So, you know, writing was sort of on the wall there. And then, uh, you know, a very turbulent month all the way through. Um, one of the capstones of that was on the 25th of July, uh, when the Communist Party began a purge of the nation's military leadership. Uh, starting with the arrest of General Zhao Hua, the director of the People's Liberation Army General Political Department. Uh, Rob, would you like to uh, give us an update on what's happening in Vietnam? Sure. I'm, I'm certain it's just going smooth there in July of 1967. Uh, nobody's ever made any movies about this time period. Uh, so <laughs> it's the, the records are spotty. It's very hard to find any, any interpretations of it. Yeah. Um, on the 2nd of July, Operation Buffalo began with the worst single day loss suffered by the United States Marines during the Vietnam War. The 400 members of Alpha Company and Bravo Company of the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines were ambushed by the North Vietnamese Army. 84 were killed, nine were missing, and 190 were wounded for a total of 283 casualties. Uh, the total number of deaths in the operation would be 159 Americans and 1,290 of the North Vietnamese during the seven days between July 2nd and July 8th. The, uh, this is this is slightly off topic. I'm reading the book The March of Folly right now, and oh, there's yeah. and she she goes in by Barbara Tuckman, and she goes in a very in such extreme detail on uh, the Vietnam War and how from from the 1950s it was like this is an unwinnable. If we ever go to war in Vietnam, this is going to be unwinnable. We cannot win it, and it will only hurt the United States. So let's do it. And for 20 <laughs> years, it was constant. This is not going to work. It is a bad idea. All right. Well, I guess we got to stick with it. <laughs> so th that was basically the war that ended the draft. Um, and yeah, when you when you screw something up that badly, um, at least we got that out of it, I guess. <laughs> at, le at least we turned military service into a into a separate class of American citizen that that most people have no experience of and don't think about much. So right. take that, Brian. Take that, Brian. <laughs> Consider yourself burnt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, I'm gonna try to uh, I'm gonna try to win back some points here with some good news. Uh, it's it's not good news that happens in America, but it's good news. <laughs> um, on on July fourth, uh, nineteen sixty seven, uh, after a bitter all night debate, the British House of Commons voted ninety nine to fourteen to approve the Sexual Offenses Act of nineteen sixty seven, which decriminalized homosexuality in England and Wales. Um, it didn't go as far as you might hope. Uh, the law only removed penalties for relations between gay men over the age of 21. Um, sexual relations between lesbians were still prohibited. Figure that one out. And the law did not apply to Scotland or to Northern Ireland, um, nor did the change in the law apply to the armed forces or the merchant marines. Um, and uh, while the age of consent for heterosexual relations was 16 years old, the law still penalized homosexual acts inv involving anyone 20 years old or younger. So, as we often say, baby steps um, toward progress, but at least that's something. So, yeah. Speaking of, you know, uh, jolly old England, the Beatles by the month um, on the 7th of July, All You Need Is Love 
which had been premiered before a live worldwide audience on the Our World special program, was released as a 45 RPM record in the United Kingdom, and it would be released in the United States on July 17th. Um, again, just cementing that we're in the summer of love uh, and there there is this other counterculture movement that is is very much about peace love and understanding and then on the uh, the 20th of july uh organized crime boss john roselli was arrested as the fbi brought an end to one of the most sophisticated card cheating operations <laughs> in american history uh, it was conducted at the Friars Club of California and caused hundreds of thousands of dollars to be swindled from various members of the club. Uh, over a period of five years, Tony Martin, Zeppo Marx, and Phil Silvers were among wealthy celebrities who lost $10,000 or more in games of gin rummy to opponents who were aided by signals from a person hiding above an air vent. <laughs> I think that that is like the most Zeppo Marx story ever <laughs> he was he got swindled out of ten thousand dollars playing gin rummy <laughs> he's he there's a reason they stopped putting him in the movies <laughs> like there's a uh there, it's there's a this book called um is it the marx brothers scrapbook or it, this one where a lot of the book is groucho marx as an old man saying terrible things about people and uh they i think they talked to they talked to gummo and they're like you were a talent representative and zeppo was going to be a talent representative why didn't you guys work together and he's like uh, and very politely, he's like, I preferred not to work with him. <laughs> like it's, there's that like Zeppo just couldn't, couldn't catch a break it. And nobody seemed to like being around him, I guess. Um, the, but that's, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to not tell my two-year-old that about Phil Silvers. We just today finished watching the movie Summerstock with Gene Kelly and Judy Garland and Phil Silvers. And my two-year-old goes, I like his glasses. He's better than Judy Garland. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Judy Garland's like one of the big greatest entertainers of all time. So, but you know what? You're, you're allowed to have your own opinions. <laughs> right. Just don't, don't, get, don't say it too loudly. Yeah. Don't get excited about the mimic and don't get too excited about Phil Silver's. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, <laughs> yeah. My kids are back in all the wrong horses. My son's going to be like, maybe if we embedded our troops with, in strategic hamlets and really got to know the villagers. And I'll be like, no, let's not do it. What are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, okay, couple more. On the 28th of July, the Mulford Act was signed into law by California Governor Ronald Reagan, somebody I've never heard of, um, as one of the stricter means of gun control, providing a five-year jail term for any person caught carrying a loaded gun on a public street within the state. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, but this happened just a couple months after uh, Huey P. Newton and uh, a bunch of uh, Black Panthers uh, forced their way into the state assembly uh, while carrying firearms. So I'm sure, you know, armed black men uh, invading uh, the state <laughs> capitol had nothing to do with this uh, all of a sudden, you know, getting religion on gun control. That's yeah. the problem with the 60s. Even when they do something that I like, they do it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yes, yeah. Kind of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm just going to close this out with a couple of comics-related births. Um, on uh, July 1st, 1967, Barb Wire herself, Pamela <laughs> Anderson was born in Ladysmith, <laughs> British Columbia. <laughs> tangentially related comics related birth. Uh, and then uh, on the 18th of July, Groot, a.k.a. Vin Diesel, was born Mark Sinclair Vincent in New York City. Um, so there you go. Uh, that's a little bit of what was happening in the world uh, in July 1967. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about some of the funny books that came out this month here on Marvel by the Month.
let's go through the quick hits. We'll start with Avengers number 44. Uh, the Avengers travel to an unnamed Asian country to rescue Hawkeye, Black Widow, and Hercules from Colonel Ling and the Widow's husband, the Red Guardian. We got to find that out uh, the last time. It it turns out, um, you know, things go fine. Yeah. It's great. Don Hell doesn't uh, do the art in this book. I, I did enjoy that. A little Avengers Don Heck rest. Avengers annual number one, however, was chock full of Don Heck art. Um, <laughs> every Avenger who was, whoever was teams up in Marvel's longest story to date to take on the Mandarin and his bad guy team of Enchantress, Executioner, Living Laser, Power Man, and Swordsman. Which um, I, I really like this issue, actually. I, I didn't want to do the deep dive on it because... I didn't know how much we would actually have to say about it, but I thought like if you were a kid who had never read an Avengers story before and you had a quarter in your pocket and you picked this up, I think it would have been, it's like, yep, yeah, that would have been a, a great way to just understand exactly like this is what the Avengers is all about. Um, I think it really delivered on the promise of an annual. Yeah. I, I just wish that John Bushima had done this instead of the normal issue number 44 yeah, so yeah. that I could have... 50 pages of that art. That's the law. That's the law of conservation of heck. You got it. You can only have, if Don Heck disappears from one book, he's got to pop off in the other book. Yep. Uh, yeah. Don Heck can neither be created nor destroyed. He d- just shuffled around <laughs> the Marvel line. That does feel correct for all the Silver Age reading we've been doing. Um, oh, one thing about Avengers Annual number one, too, there is a little note, a bio of Don Heck's, his own bio of his history in, in comics in the back. And I was surprised to hear, you know, how long he'd been involved in comics up to this point and I, I'm, I'm being super mean but because there are some great panels and great art from him through iron man and other things but uh but at this point he's kind of the the uh the b side of any uh of the hits <laughs> I, I think doing an ensemble superhero team book did not play to his strengths um, no which yeah. is i mean just staging and <laughs> figure figure <laughs> <Staging>. drawing <laughs> he I, I everything looks like and i i'm i'm saying this as somebody who studied art and is not as good as don heck so uh you know i'm basically what we call a critic right now um <laughs> but uh yeah he it's so i don't want to to bag on it too much but i i but was sad. but 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 let me go on no anyway uh, <laughs> let me finish sir let me finish you had your turn let me have mine uh over in daredevil number 32 daredevil who is still just regular blind not super blind uh because of <laughs> getting getting hit by mr hyde's uh blind juice um managed to uh he manages to trick Mr. Hyde into giving him the antidote that restores his super senses and then beats up Hyde and Cobra. Mr. Hyde and Cobra always seem to me one of the strangest villain teams. Yeah. It make they make no sense together. And uh earlier this year I read all of Mark Roinwald's run on Captain America, and I really enjoyed how he brought that back and and Cobra was like, Ugh, Mr. Hyde, I gotta <laughs> I gotta beat him up to show that I'm 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 the the, the villain I think I am. And then later by the end of the run, they're friends again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're literally hanging out next to a pool together. And I was like, you know what? Now I get it. They just uh, they like each other, they like spending yeah. time around each other. Yeah. <laughs> 
there's just something that clicks. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't choose. Look, you don't choose love. Love chooses you, I guess. That's what happens. <laughs> but not, but not Brandeck. Anyway, you're going to talk about one of oh, the Oh yeah. Not Brandeck number three. It, the, the most hilarious comic ever made by Marvel continues. Um, <laughs> I, you don't really have to say any more than that. I don't know if it's worth getting into what was actually in that thing. The origin of Brucey banter and friend. Um, the honest to Irving true blue top secret original origin of Charlie America. Just, just so you can get a taste of the titles. Um, next, Sergeant Fury number 46 was called <laughs> They Also Serve, but it was not on Marvel Unlimited and we aren't out in the COVID bins. Um, looking for it so we didn't read it tales of suspense number 94 iron man defeats the titanium man in vietnam while commie scientist half face has a change of heart after iron man saves his family's village from destruction also uh, in there is if this be modok we'll talk about this one a little bit later if you've never heard of Modoc, again, it's weird because the Venn diagram of people who listen to this show and uh, people who don't know Modoc, there's two circles. Um, yeah, yeah. They, there's yeah. no overlap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the uh, the the thing about that that Iron Man story, which is the we you know we were talking about how the Vietnam War was a bad was a bad idea. It was not a good idea. Is <laughs> it is such uh, I assume out of ignorance of the true political situation, it edges into being pro Vietnam war propaganda in a way that's real gross where it's yeah. like the, 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 where titanium man's going to destroy a Vietnamese village so that people will think American bombers will do it, did it. And the Vietnamese will turn against the Americans and they see Iron Man and they're like, Oh, as long as the American Iron Man is here, maybe we should look for democracy. And it was <laughs> like, Oh boy, this is like, this is rough. This yeah. is like, um, but it's Gene Colon art. So I can't totally, despise it you know yeah 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 it, it that's basically that you've put your finger on the problem with all iron man stories for the next five years like <laughs> it's, it's just like i mean one of the boldest things when they made the first iron man movie was that while the united states was at war they managed to tell the story of a hero who's also a weapons manufacturer and regardless of which side you fell on you know whether you were for the war or against it you still saw tony stark as a hero which is a needle that they never thread in any of no. the comics of the 60s uh, but no. they figured out how to do it for the movie which is amazing yeah 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 I had the same feeling. I'm like just reading propaganda, but I really like looking at it. So uh, <laughs> I guess I feel that way about a lot of propaganda. There are some that's, great that's things. Good propaganda. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, okay. So tales, uh, tales to astonish number 96. Namor pursues the plunderer to skull Island in the savage land. Um, and the Hulk completes his outer space adventure with the high evolutionary who winds up highly evolved, which is very on brand for him. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I really like the whole Hulk, uh, high evolutionary storyline, like, uh, the Marie Severin art. And for whatever reason, like Stan really seemed to take it seriously. Um, and like actually put a little bit more effort into it than we have typically seen in, uh, in Hulk. I, I, didn't like the high evolutionary through like the nineties, two thousand or two thousands. And, but seeing the start of it, I'm like, well, it's pretty true and solid and, and decent creation for, for a villain. Yeah. And good luck too. I like the character design. So yeah, yeah. He does. He looks way cooler than he is. Yeah. yeah. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, he has, his his high point for me is when he gets involved with another character we're going to be talking about later in one of the books that we're talking about. But he's 
at a certain point in the 90s, they turned him into one of those villains where he was like, you don't understand. There are things going on here that even you don't know about. And then you'd never find out what he was talking about. And it was like, oh, okay, well, that's that's what he does now, huh? He knows a lot of secrets. Yeah. And he's never going to spill them, you know. When he's done right, he's he can be such a good, like, character who doesn't know he's he doesn't realize he's a bad guy yeah you know and uh and manages to get and his look is amazing with the handle on his head and everything like that you can just pick (laughs) him up and walk away with him (laughs) easy carry high evolutionary Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh and thor number 144 thor sif and balder fight two of the three enchanters on earth while odin himself duels the third in asgard for the right to rule the kingdom of the gods um Again, the Enchanters look super cool, and I was so surprised I'd never heard of them when we first saw them yeah. uh, <laughs> appear. And they're put over, you know, as super powerful, but they, they're they no Galactus. They just did not stick. Um, yeah. X-Men number 36, the X-Men battle Meccano, a spoiled rich kid in an exosuit, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as they try to scrounge up airfare to Europe to rescue Professor X from Factor 3. I do not look forward to reading these books with my son and having to be like, what's Meccano up to now? And I'll be like, nothing, nothing ever. Absolutely like this, nothing. Yeah. I, I've literally gone through, I, I, ahead of time I was like, he's like, what, what What other great characters are there? I'm like, okay, look, here's the secret with the X-Men books is they didn't really know what to do with them for like 70 issues. And then, <laughs> and then years later they figured out what to do with them and it got great. But like, uh. So many, like we just finished um, the issue where it ends with uh, with them with Lucifer's boss in another planet saying, yes. "Okay, send in Dominus," and he's like, "What's Dominus?" And I'm like, "Don't worry about it. Like, it's, it's not going to be that exciting." Yeah, there's there's a reason they stopped publishing it for several years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it shows you like there's something there's something in the even if the the books themselves are not great, there's something in the concept that is yes. so rich because yeah. clearly. Everything Claremont's doing is is building off of the stuff that they established in those issues, mm-hmm. and he's just like, "Oh, what if I put some thought into this? <laughs> like, <laughs> what if this wasn't the sixth book I was writing every month, and instead yeah. it was the first book I was writing?" Right. Like, yep. yep. Where I where I'm so tired of even naming a villain, they just get a pronoun, um, <laughs> which we'll talk about later. <laughs> So uh, the last one uh, that the, for the quick hits is Strange Tales number 161. Baron Mordo, uh, who is back again, banishes Doctor Strange through the Veil of Infinity, where he encounters Victoria Bentley, who he met in Strange Tales number 114, and Nebulous, Lord of, of the Planets, Perilous. Great name. Um, uh, yeah, but, I was like, yeah. how do I not know Nebulous? Yeah. These these Doctor Strange stories are just like nonstop nonsense. Yep. It's just nonstop nothing. But the pictures yep. are gorgeous. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a sucker for anything where Doctor Strange is in front of like a background where planets are swirling by and there's weird grids and like there's but it's just like it's just so empty. It's just empty nonsense. There's yeah. no there's no rhyme or reason. It doesn't mean anything. No, yeah. they're a, they're just a bunch of black light posters. Yeah, and a Golden Age villain appears in in the Nick Fury Agent of Shield story. Uh, Brian, do you want to tell us about that one? Yeah, um, I will do a a slightly less quick uh, recap of this. So uh, Strange Tales 161, uh, the story is called The Second Doom. Uh, It was written and drawn by Jim Steranko. 
so for uh, sort of a quick summary of it, this is the continuation of the flashback story uh, that began uh, began in the previous issue. And this one starts out with Reed Richards and Ben Grimm rescuing uh, Captain America, who's, of course, falling from the sky because that's how Cap often finds himself. <laughs> um, and they help uh, Cap get inside the Statue of Liberty, uh, where he teams up with Nick Fury to defeat these unknown armored enemies uh, who tried to take over Bedlow Island. And then, uh, so in the future, in the present, Fury wraps up the story. Um, he and Cap, you know, defeated them, and uh, so he's he's wrapping up the story, telling uh, FBI agent Jimmy Wu, uh, who says there's only one man capable of such an incredible assault, the Yellow Claw. Were you guys familiar with the Yellow Claw as a as a '50s character? I was only because he gets mentioned, I think, in some of the. The Jimmy Woo Return comics mm-hmm. for the modern day Jimmy Woo Agent of Atlas stuff. I think Yellow yep. Claw gets like name checked, but he's one of these characters that Marvel has rightly done a lot of sweeping under the rug, you yes. know, or understandably, I guess. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. No, totally. <laughs> so he he was um, created by Al Feldstein, uh, who was the editor in chief of Mad Magazine for years and years. Wrote a bunch of the uh, the EC Comics. Uh, stories of the 50s uh, and uh, Joe Manili was the artist um, uh, the character was created in 56 for Atlas um, the whole backstory was he, he was a 150 year old Chinese alchemist slash scientist slash would-be world conqueror I mean basically kind of a photocopy of a photocopy of Fu Manchu mm-hmm. um, Jimmy Wu was his adversary in the Atlas days as well um, he was in love with the Yellow Claw's daughter Su Huan um, they use just a very by the numbers, like yellow peril style pulp villain. Um, his book only lasted four issues and that, and that was pretty much it. Um, but at this point, like in the silver age, Marvel doesn't do a lot of tapping into the golden age stuff as well. Like, you know, when the human torch comes back, it's not the same human torch, you know, from the, the, uh, fifties. I mean, Submariner's brought back, but he's a very different character in the sixties than he was in the fifties, um, so this is like Stranko reaching back into Marvel's legacy um, with this character who was not probably problematic when he was brought back in 67. I, I mean, mean, it I depends think. on depends on who is reading it. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. always problematic to somebody. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's so weird that in both of the both times, the 50s and the 60s, it's like we're going to have this character, Jimmy Woo. He's going to be like a cool American agent. Mm-hmm. And he happens to be of Asian descent. But we got to balance it out. We got to have the most racist <laughs> villain for him to be up against, or yeah. else we can't even put this book out. Like it's such a, it's like a real, a real one step forward, thirty steps back, kind of. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, just like even in the illustration, Jimmy Woo in the Nick Fury story, like the, when he's colored, it's his the flesh tone they use is the same that they use for Nick Fury, the same they use for Captain America. Um, and then we turn the page and we see the yellow claw and he's that that sickly pale yellow that was kind of like shorthand for Asian character in and, and you don't see that in the 60s. You, you see it in the 50s comics, but you know, we haven't seen that used uh, for Asian characters in the 60s. Um, you know, and just the fact that he's called the Yellow Claw. I mean, <laughs> yeah, at least he, that is, and, and he has yeah. and he has like a Fu Manchu mustache and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was happy to note the yellow colored claws on his fingers to at least just have the color referenced as part of his costume. So it wasn't if he had none of that, it would be just obviously there's no way to talk your way out of the amount of racism, the racism hole we're in there. You know, it's just um, not that I want to 
talk. Uh, it's there's no talking out of that racism. <laughs> uh, I should back up a bit and say it's way racist. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, again, I was just like having having some accent. There better be some some yellow claws on this guy's costume because, man, it's too racist if you do it, even for 67. Yeah. It's pretty racist, and it come. It's the end, but they have an even bigger sin, which is he's on the cover, but he doesn't appear until the last page of the story. So you both <laughs> ruined the you ruined the surprise, and also you, you don't have that you, the character you promised isn't in it. But it's yeah, it's mainly the racism is the worst problem, I guess. The, the, <laughs> this is I'm I'm such a fan of Stranko's visual sense, but this is a pretty this is a pretty lazy storytelling story for him and like Mm -hmm. i wonder if he was trying to make the point that nick fury is bad at telling stories because (laughs) nick fury is telling jimmy woo the story and he's not very good at it and like there's this page where it's a it's a great page where nick fury it's a full page splash where nick fury and captain america are fighting all these bad guys and there's literally it says at the bottom note anyway here's what was going on with the fantastic four that explains how they won the battle uh because we just have this picture right here like it's really crazy that they <laughs> that they're literally telling you what happened in the story in an asterisk note at the bottom <laughs> at the bottom of what's a, a pinup like a full, did rob liefeld yeah. do this like what's going on you know <laughs> there yeah here's a yeah. paragraph of story that should be several pages <laughs> but yeah uh yeah, yeah there there's a lot i mean steranko's art is like a david lynch movie to me most of the time it's just there's there's uh like i mean like an action david like it's like dune or something um yeah just has its own quality um that's so fun to to experience but yeah this does look like he's he's like i you know i'm not gonna draw that page just here's one big panel i'm gonna have fun drawing this and i'm not gonna have fun drawing the thing (laughs) tapping into the energy you know the power station so that reed richards can channel it to this gun that captain america needs but he just uses it in this one panel it's not that (laughs) like it's and there's a there's a line when uh so nick fury blows up this big mind bomb which is essentially like a a cut rate mad bomb or i guess it's a pre primordial mad bomb and uh he says then the bomb did its job ripping that oversized director set into a million pieces that even humpty dumpty couldn't get together again it's like nick do you know the humpty Dumpty story like Humpty Dumpty <laughs> was not the guy putting the pieces together like like he was in pieces he's not the one you're gonna get for this job like it's such it was so funny to me there's like this sounds tough but it it is totally wrong and doesn't make sense well I mean Nick Fury is sort of he's he's more than a bit of an idiot savant like he's, <laughs> he's really good at one thing and he's action-oriented yeah um, not not good at anything yeah. else yeah um, fair they should it, which shows when he's the leader of shield you know decades later he's constantly getting into trouble and shields constantly being overrun with infiltrating villains so like he's not <laughs> a good administrator like he's he's a good pair of fists but yeah yes, don't put yeah. him in charge of something yeah yeah that's the reason he resisted promotions for years and years i mean you should, <laughs> you should listen to listen to someone who doesn't want to be promoted i feel uh, like i want to start using that not even humpty dumpty could put this back together just uh <laughs> to, just as a tr- try dropping it in casual work conversation and see if anybody catches it yeah <laughs> i don't know like looking at the story this is not my favorite Steranko story by any stretch. Um, I, I think it's it is a weak point um, in his his uh, run on the book, but it did make me think about like you know if you want to bring back a problematic character, like has there ever been a good example of someone plucking a character out of the past, getting rid of the the parts that have not aged well um, and actually making it a relevant character for the future. Or, I mean, do we just at some point say, 
this is not worth the effort. Like this, like just let this go. Really, unfortunately, like I feel like he should have just not bothered with this. I don't know if there's any redeeming this character um, or, or, or why you would want to. I mean, it was a character that was used for four issues, you know, in the fifties. Like, it's not like it was a pillar of the Marvel universe. At that point, <laughs> yeah. you know? But Steranko's always been like a, re- he, you know, he came with the Steranko history of, of comic books and everything. He's mm-hmm. like, he's always been like a guy who loves old stuff. Sure. And, but I agree with you that this character in particular is not a, there's no reason to do. I, th- I think there's probably some, it's like the Mandarin is a character who I have a certain affection for, but I don't know why, because he is mm-hmm. not that different from the yellow claw when right. you come down to it. And mm-hmm. for decades now, writers and artists have tried to find ways to do the Mandarin where he is not Fu Manchu. And it's at a certain point you're like, you have to come to terms with it being baked in and that it's really just the weakness of Iron Man's rogues gallery that mm-hmm. leads you to want to bring the Mandarin back, you know, but when there's so many character, I mean, in the sixties, they didn't have as deep a Marvel bench to reach yeah. back into, which is why in those old X-Men comics, I was talking about earlier, Magneto comes back like every issue for a while. <laughs> um, but it's, you st- you have to think that there was so much imagination going on at the house of ideas at the time. Like you would have rather seen who's a character Steranko is going to come up with. Like who's, mm-hmm. who's someone that, and maybe he was just tired of coming up with new characters. And he's like, you know who we haven't seen a lot of? The Yellow Claw. I remember when I was an escape artist with the circus, I had an issue of Yellow Claw. And I'm going to, you know, I'll bring him back. <laughs> or there's, yeah. a, you know, a worse conversation that's like when you were talking about sort of balancing the, the progressivism of Jimmy Woo, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. where somebody's like, well, this is sounding, you know, we're in a lot of uh, – situations in in asia so you know to they're like the propaganda move like i i don't think that's what it was but in the 60s could have been somebody Mm -hmm. says we need to have a villain that's i mean we've seen and we do see so many villains right now that are just caricatures and if jimmy woo had shown up as an agent of shield like that would have been perfect you know just like if you want to make a reference to who he fought in the 50s that's fine but like Mm -hmm. bringing in jimmy woo as a supporting character as an agent is perfect and i think he does wind up being an agent of shield like um at some point Um, i'm not sure how soon he comes on board but um yeah like that's a great way to tap into the history and maybe leave some of the other the other stuff uh, in the past where it belongs. So. Yeah, it's yeah. also. I mean, like people, I think forget how because there's such a because there's such a history of of racism against uh, people of darker skin colors of black mm-hmm. people in particular. Like, I think people forget what a rich history of anti Chinese and Japanese uh, sentiment there has been in the United States going back, you know, a couple hundred years. Yeah. And so, like, there's uh, there's just like you know, I watch a lot of old movies, and there's a thing that. I, that I uh, call the classic movie cringe where I'm watching an old movie and then someone even just does a joke where they do like their idea of a Chinese accent. I'm like, Ugh, why is that in this? Like, yeah. why did you have to do that? Yeah. And it's just, uh, takes a long time for people to uh, not see other types of people as the other, yeah. I guess, in a larger sort of sense. But anyway, I guess what we're saying is love it. Can't wait for that yellow claw reboot. <laughs> <Bring it back. laughs> yeah. I think yellow claw is probably going to get its own series on Disney plus. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. But it, where he has to take care of a bunch of kids. That's the thing. Is it? <laughs> Fantastic. We've solved it. Uh, that's how you bring back a problematic. That's character. how you do it. Tales of Suspense number 94, If This Be 
Modoc, written by Stan Lee, art by Jack Kirby with Joe Sinnott. Continued from last issue, Captain America has infiltrated an undersea aim base looking for the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent he's in love with, but he still doesn't know her name. It's just classic early Marvel. Just, Speaking of background hum of problematic stuff. Yeah, just, a, just ask anybody at S.H.I.E.L.D. you can find. Anyway, so all of the beekeepers live in fear of something called MODOK, which is both extremely powerful and has control of the base. Um, they send Cap to face MODOK and he's, well, how do we describe MODOK? Uh, he's giant baby in a floating chair. Yeah, he's got a big head with a headband on it that shoots laser beams. He's got little arms and legs. He's in a floating chair. It's yeah. just, it, he's one of your classic comic visuals. You know, <laughs> If you have never seen MODOK, uh, it's very hard to just imagine this guy whose head is like car big, but his body still kind of isn't, and they're all connected still. Well, it's like yeah. if you take a soda can and you <laughs> stick like little arms and legs on it, and the soda can is just the head. That's yeah. Modoc. Like there it's, you go. It's, and he is so like Modoc is a triumph of Jack Kirby character design in that yes. he is so grotesque and out there and you just have to either be like I I'm out tap the table like <laughs> I have to get up or you're like okay I'm in. Like there's no you, if you're if you're in this story you're in it for Modoc and like yes. it's such a that Jack Kirby he's like I'm going to make this work this crazy idea and then I'm going to lose interest in it. Almost instantly. <laughs> because as soon as Modoc shows off what his laser beams can do, Captain America is fighting him mostly off panel. And the aim scientists are like, Cap's distracted him. Go in there and shoot Modoc a lot. And they do, and they kill him. And it's like <laughs> this this character, he's on the cover, he's the name of the story, like or they, they mention him on the cover at least. Yeah. And yeah. like he has such a short lifespan in this. And it's like Jack Kirby's like, look at this crazy guy. Look at what his lasers can do. Well, that's all he does on board. Like, he's a real love him and leave him creator. Like, yeah. My floating chair goes really fast. There was that, too. He, he does make <laughs> yeah, a comment too. about how fast his floating magnetic chair is. Um, mm-hmm. That's it. And you're right. And, and uh, he's, but like, he's one of those characters who the design gets into your head and you cannot forget it. And yeah. so that's how a character like Modoc, like, never goes away because there's something so comic book about him. We are like, this is ridiculous. Like this only exists in, like if you tried this in a story, a prose story, you'd have to go. So you have to spend so much time explaining it. And if you tried to do it in a live action movie, maybe they'll pull it off someday, but I don't know. Like, it's uh, but uh, he's putting comic books on the page. You're like, great. I don't have to think about how he moves. I don't have to think about what his voice sounds like. You know, it's, (laughs) <laughs> uh, what an amazing character. And then eventually later, years later, they introduced Modam, the female Modoc, who's just Modoc but with makeup on, which is, <laughs> which is taking it another another notch up. And you have to imagine the AIM ag- agents applying with this enormous thing, like just lipstick to the lips of Modam because she can't yeah. reach her own face with her arms. You know, it's, Yeah. I was just like – Thinking of Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head um, as as sort of analogs, I'm like, when did Mr. Potato Head come out? Did Jack Kirby see a Mr. Potato Head and go, I'm going to make a real gross version of that? That's yeah. a villain. That's and, possible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it, and also, like, there's something really primal design wise about Modoc. Like, he really does look like like the first figure that a kid draws where it's mm-hmm. like the circle is the head and then the arms and legs are coming off of the circle and it's like there you go you know <laughs> um that's that's a person he's uh, he's like a he's yeah. like a gritty reboot of humpty dumpty 
Like to, <laughs> yeah. to borrow from Nick Fury from that other story. He's like, it's like if Humpty Dumpty was like a bad guy, you know, yes. yeah. and not egg foo or whatever that Wonder Woman villain is. Who's an, oh. who's, who's a racist Chinese egg, but uh, yeah. that's yeah. That something. So I'll get into this more when we talk about the fantastic four issue that we're talking about, but cap and the fantastic four are basically having the same story. Only Cap mm-hmm. is doing the eight-page version of it, which is a bunch of scientists created something. Now they're afraid of it, and they're basically – and the heroes kind of get thrown at it. You know? Yep. Um, <laughs> That's exactly it. And it's crazy that they came out – these issues came out around this – so close together. And this exact same team working on both of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, again, House of Ideas, more like House of Only a Few Ideas. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right. There's there's what at the end of this book and the Marvel Unlimited thing. Marvel Unlimited doesn't always throw in the letters page, but I'm always mm-hmm. excited when they do. Yeah. At the end of their file of this, they have the letters page, and there's an ad for the Mary Marvel Marching Society, and they describe all the things you're gonna get. And it's like normal Stanley hyperbole, like either Stan or Roy Thomas, I'm sure wrote this this copy or someone in that style. And they mention a mind snapping Marvel pencil, and that was the one moment where it took me out of that. I was like, can't go that far. There's no way that this this Marvel Marvel pencil is mind snapping. My suspension. <laughs> of disbelief just broke right there Stan (laughs) like this pencil like I'll I'll buy Modoc but I cannot buy it with that pencil is that exciting (laughs) yeah so how how's how's this whole thing end, Rob? So Cap and his lady love, who he doesn't know the name of, hitch a ride on Ames submarine as Modoc fires a brain beam at a detonator that blows up the base. So it, like Modoc and Modoc says or says or thinks this or thinks says out loud as they do in this time. Um, I you know I'm gonna basically he just says I'm gonna go out super big. I'm they're gonna remember my name forever. As he, because I'm going to blow myself up so awesomely. It just, uh, and he was right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we don't remember him because he blew himself up, but we, we're still talking about him now. He's great. Look, yeah. that's yeah. It's, it's, there's no such thing as bad Modoc. We're still talking about him, you know. <laughs> but, but it's, but it's so funny to me that he's like, at least I'll be remembered in legend forever. And everyone in the story seems to have already forgotten about him. They are not <laughs> talking about Modoc when they're leaving on that submarine. They're just like. Let's get out of here. We're done with that adventure. But Modoc is like, I'll go down in the annals for my final sacrifice. <laughs> like, yep. Oh man, yeah. Modoc's great. Like every, I love everything about the character. I love everything about him in this story. Um, and it's just like it's Kirby gone completely bananas. Um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. It's it's the love bug. Kirby gone bananas. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, but, uh, Elliot, you worked with, uh, Patton Oswalt on MST3K. Um, how big of a comics nerd is he and how great is his MODOK going to be, uh, the animated show? He is a pretty big comics nerd. I unfortunately didn't get to work with him as closely as I would have liked more due to scheduling Mm -hmm. than anything else. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, he knows his stuff. Like he knows what he's talking about. And, uh, I'm really looking forward to that MODOK show. The, the, uh, like... In other hands, I would worry that it would lean too far in the direction of totally just taking the piss out of, out of the idea of Modoc, and I'm sure right. they'll do a certain amount of that. But he strikes me as someone who like thinks that Modoc is cool, like is the, someone who thinks it's ridiculous, but also is like I get why Modoc is cool. So yeah. it should be really mm-hmm. fun. I'm looking forward to it. Let's talk about Fantastic Four, number 67. Uh, this story is called When Opens the Cocoon, produced by the exact same team that uh, did the Captain America story this month. Uh, Stan Lee wrote it. Jack Kirby drew it. Joe Sinnott inked it. 
Um, so this is continued from the previous issue. Uh, it opens with Reed Richards in his lab recreating the teleporter bracelet that a mysterious scientist used to kind of, sort of, kidnap the thing's blind sculptor girlfriend, Alicia Masters, uh, last issue. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Alicia and the scientist, the name is Hamilton, uh, they're approaching a mysterious and powerful artificial being known as him, uh, which Hamilton and his friends at the Citadel of Science created and then lost control of. Him lashes. I, okay, I hate the name of this character because using it in sentences makes you sound like an idiot. Like, yeah. y- you can't be. <laughs> you sound like you don't know how to speak the language. <laughs> him lashes out at Hamilton. Uh, but the presence of Alicia calms him down. Um, and also, like, if you're reading this off of notes, as I am, um, when you see, like, just bizarrely capitalized hymns uh, in your uh, in your notes, uh, it takes you back to your um, Baptist elementary school days, which is its own <laughs> uh, so barely subdued trauma. Um, but so, uh, I mean, you're this, just... this hymn and that hymn are not are not so different after all. <laughs> not so much. This this hymn is that hymn with like a. 30% Rocky from Rocky Horror. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, at least. I, I would give it, I'd give it like 100% Rocky from Rocky Horror. I'm trying to remember when Rocky Horror, the play, came out, the original Rocky mm-hmm. Horror show, because there's part of me that's like, either they saw this comic or like there's, there, it's probably, probably not, but it is so like Rocky Horror is the story of this issue of Fantastic Four to a certain extent, you know, yes, except yes. more, more fun. <laughs> and, and you know, Jack Kirby was, was seeing, he saw Rocky Horror Picture Show, and you know, he was like, why didn't I make the scientist transvestite vampires? Like, why didn't I do it? Of course, it was all right there. I could have added three more ideas to the story. Yeah, Jack did not suffer from a lack of ideas. Uh, this, <laughs> man, this story, it, it, like with all Fantastic Four stories at this time, it's just, it's wild. Like, you know, he's got Reed using this like go back in time viewer to like reverse engineer this, this gadget uh, that, that teleports them uh, to the Citadel of science. They show up, they start smashing everything up. And again, like huge, you know, widescreen Kirby, you know, explosions and energy bursts and everything underground Um, labs with monorails. And yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, the Citadel of science looks like they're these characters. If they had been handled better, should have been set up as like major Fantastic Four villains because they're basically right. like the evil Fantastic Four in a way where it's like we've got all this science but we're using it for bad stuff and we've got <laughs> this and the Citadel of Science is an amazing like there's that scene where they're just jetting around the Citadel of Science in their little hover car and it's like yeah this is all it's just Kirby throwing designs and phrases and Stanley throwing phrases at you and it's like yeah great give me more of this but they <laughs> decide to give us less of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also I think I feel like there was some real ambiguity about like, are these guys the bad guys or not? Because it, it really does like for the first half of the story or th- even three quarters of the story, it really is very much like we're scientists. We were playing God. Maybe we shouldn't have been, but things got a little crazy. And now we need. Well, <laughs> they bring Alicia in so she can sculpt him so that they can figure out what they're dealing with. Because <laughs> they can't yeah, him, look at him. Because he can't look at him because he's so powerful. Well, that's right. the, uh, so do you, are you guys aware of the behind-the-scenes uh, disagreements that they had? Or should I drop some hymn knowledge? Oh, please. Bring the oh, hymn. Sure. Okay. Open yeah. the hymnal. <laughs> so this is, this, is, yeah, this is one of those times, like uh, the handling of Silver Surfer, where Kirby had a very specific idea and point he wanted to make with the story. And Stan, for whatever reason, was like, I don't like that. We're going to change it. And so from what I've read Kirby's purpose was this was kind of his jab in some ways at kind of objectivist 
teaching and the idea that there is an objective good and an objective bad and like you and that the rules of life are knowable and that you know and all the stuff that flows from that and that his idea was i'm going to do the story where these scientists are going to make the perfect man and then the perfect man decides that the scientists don't live up to his standard of excellence and destroys the scientists and so it's more like the idea that you can ever achieve you that you can that be careful to wish for like the perfect selfish you know um independent all on his own man because he will see no need for you and he'll destroy <laughs> you you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah. and that i think this was possibly either either headier than than stan wanted to get into or he just thought it wasn't that interesting for a story or he thought it was something kids weren't going to get or like ditko was off spider-man by that point so it's not like he wasn't trying to piss off ditko and like <laughs> stanley's <laughs> whole career at a certain point was like how can i piss off ditko more but uh like but it fe- but for whatever reason he hedged it and was like, we're just going to make them bad guys who are going to use him to conquer the yeah. earth. So it's just that much more straightforward. And so you had this like, the kind of thing that Jack Kirby was going to do more with New Gods where he was editing himself and writing it himself where yeah. he'd be like, mm, time for me to do superheroes to make a very elaborate point about personal will and then, <laughs> and like why it's important for us to love each other. And and Sam was like, we're not doing that. We're just we're just going to make it like a science fiction story. So it's yeah. and that confusion comes through in the story, especially towards yes. the end, which is like one of the most rushed endings of a Fantastic Four book. I have to imagine. You know? yeah, yeah, I mean that actually everything you just said makes a lot of sense. Like that actually explains how this thing ends because like there's a curveball thrown at the very end. It's like. Yeah, actually, we did want to use him to take over the world. It's like that seed was never planted anywhere in the first 35 pages of the story. <laughs> yeah, every discussion in the other issues were more about the betterment of, you know, everything they said was they came together to try to 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 make the world a better place. And then they they made, you know, Frankenstein's monster that happened to be solid Terminator style. Smarter than you. I'm better mm-hmm. than you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that does make it make a little bit more sense. And I often think that, you know, knowing what we know now about how Kirby would just sort of turn in some art <laughs> or turn yeah. in an idea and Stan was just either make him redo things or write around it um, to, to mm-hmm. make it make, in many cases, less sense. You know what? Here's what I actually think it probably was. This is my guess. This is my guess. That Stan was like, you didn't like the way we handled the Silver Surfer, and now he's a viable character. So this mm-hmm. character, him, this could be your next Silver Surfer. If he is a bad guy who destroys people because they think they're he thinks they're not as good as them, we can't use him again. But and these scientists are not as interesting as this guy. So you know what? We're gonna. I want him to be a hero at some point in the future. And you can see he puts all this stuff. Mankind won't be ready for me for another millennium. And but, <laughs> yeah. but they will know of as some distant way they will know of him. And it's like. Where does all this stuff come from? Like suddenly, like suddenly, he's he's Space Jesus, which he will become yes. as he becomes one of my favorite characters of all time, yeah. Adam Warlock. But like yeah, yeah. the, uh, but I bet you it was Stan being like, this character, I can't do anything I find interesting with this character mm-hmm. if you turn him into this kind of remorseless, you know, uh, insensitive villain, which is yeah. kind of what he did with Silver Surfer. Like Silver Surfer was supposed to be at first like this cold alien thing that learns that learns humanity, but instead Stan was like, "Eh, we'll just make him a we'll make him a sweet guy." Who's like, "Why do people have to hate each other so much?" Because that's what I want to write. Uh, now I bet you know what I bet that's what it was. He was like that. He was like Jack. Why are you wrecking my next Silver Surfer? Like, let's just we'll make these into bad guys, and then because it really is, it's a long it's a long road for him. 
uh, to eventually become, again, maybe my second favorite Marvel character. He comes out and he looks like Rocky from Rocky Horror. Then he, the next time you see him, he's beating up Thor because he wants to kidnap Sif because he's <laughs> like, I don't understand. I see this woman and I want her. And it's like, and then it's years later that he's on Counter Earth with High Evolutionary and becomes kind of the Adam Warlock we know. And mm-hmm. then Jim Starlin takes him over and just uses him as a vessel for all the things Jim Starlin's interested in. And <laughs> it's like, a, it's a weird bio for this character. Like yes. this, this is a character whose Wikipedia fictional character biography does, it takes a lot of twists and turns, you know? And <laughs> not, the fact not that- Not Kang level, but close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that that his that the standard always remains that he gets into the that he emerges from weird cocoons. Like it's funny that that's one of the few things they <laughs> yeah. they kept. You know that Matt Fraction said looks like a just a big pile of ribs. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why I like it so much. It doesn't. It doesn't look like a big pile of ribs. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, that's another like. I mean, some of the visuals in this talking about like Kirby's design sense, like the cocoon itself is so alien and creepy and mm-hmm. wonderful. Like, I, I just love the look of that thing. It's somehow um, it's somehow H.R. Geiger esque. Like yeah, twelve years before much. Alien comes out, like he really got that. It's such a. It's another one of these issues though, where the Fantastic Four are like, watch out, guys, the Fantastic Four are here, and then nobody in the base knows why they're there and the main villains never even see them they don't and and the fantastic and then it's like him's gonna gonna blow this place up and the fantastic four go gotta go and they leave all these henchmen to die and the explosion yep. like this there's a real uh that the, the fantastic four leave on this mission by telling sue and crystal don't you stay here it's too dangerous and it's like these are two massively powerful characters like they'd yep. be really helpful if you're sneaking into a base and then they they get there and they're like, what is this? Well, we got to get out of here. And they just leave. I guess they they, get, they save they, Alicia. They grab Alicia. Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> yoink, we're out. That is, that supports the theory though, that they, they don't really ever fight crime or solve things. They're just sort of adventurers who happen into weird stuff and then get out alive. Uh, you know? Yes. Yeah. I guess you could say like when, when Stan leaves the book and the stories become much more like, straightforward in that way mm-hmm. where it's like this guy, this guy's gonna blow up the earth we gotta stop him great we did it like it loses a little bit of that that magic the challengers of the unknown yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they're they're a better version of the challengers um talking of uh crystal one aside I, I just wanted to make uh is one of the scenes i really liked in here is where we first see her show up in the book and it's johnny and crystal uh hanging out in the baxter building and it's great because it's like Kirby gets to just tap into his romance comic uh, background, which is a genre that he invented. So it's like I like seeing when he gets to to do um, little touches of that. But but also like the I, I talked about this in a previous episode, but like they're really writing like Johnny and Crystal are it's totally like teen romance. Um, like they're really, really dialing that up. And. I think they're like alluding to some stuff that maybe would not have, I'm kind of surprised they got away with it with the comics code. I mean, like when we first see them, she's making him breakfast. There was a sleepover. It was a sleepover. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. Like, I just like the fact that, that these two middle-aged, you know, dudes, they actually had their finger on the pulse of like, this is a very teenage thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I actually really like the, their relationship here. Um, so I've always thought Johnny and Crystal worked really well as a couple. Yeah, and they and you were making fun of Captain America not knowing the agent's name. They mm-hmm. met when he just saw her and was like, "Who is she? I'm I'm in love with her now. I must have her." But <laughs> yes. There's a 
two things. Two things I want to say about this book. One's related to that. The first thing I want to say is that Joe Sinnott is like he's earning every cent they paid him. Like he does such <laughs> an amazing job on this book. There's so many crazy Kirby machines, but even there's a page where. They're sitting down and having pancakes, and this yeah. is the other thing I want to say. When they, <laughs> they walk in on that breakfast, and then Sue is like, "Thing, cheer up! I'm going to give you some. I'm going to make you some pancakes while we're waiting for Reed to finish. So, some wheat and cakes. Some wheat cakes. The official right, pancakes of the Marvel <laughs> universe. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's an all the, the biggest difference between the MCU six sixteen, you know, Earth and ours <laughs> is that they don't eat pancakes; they eat wheat cakes there. <laughs> but uh, th- th- there's some there's some, yeah, the uh, Watcher is going to do the Watcher does some issue, I guess, where it's like, what if pancakes for what they ate and there's no heroes and but uh the there's this page where it's like they're just in the kitchen and thing is sitting down and has his head in his hands and he's just waiting for pancakes and it's like it's so his the the posing work and the way it's rendered is so fantastic Mm -hmm. and like thing especially is drawn and inked so well in this book and just i was just like sitting there marveling at the the image of him get like with his hand on a table, pushing the chair back with one other hand as he's settling down into the chair. And it was such a real lived pose. And it just blew me away that in this book that's so – like they're literally going to a citadel of science to find a god man that is emerging (laughs) from a cocoon and there's explosions and stuff. And Reed Richards is making some sort of – teleportation bracelet that like the thing that blew me away that won't that blew me away the most was how real it felt that thing was settling into this chair and like yeah. it's just it, it's just, like that's the real beauty of it and the genius of it and it's in that johnny and crystal section is it's like there's all this crazy stuff but like the real the human details when they get when they focus on them or they really get right you know yeah. aside from reed and sue's marriage which is an abomination you know <laughs> that, where he's just constantly belittling her <laughs> yeah just, yeah man like I I was a bigger Fantastic Four fan before we started this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I feel like this read is just set up to, uh, yeah, become evil. Like maybe at some point somebody needs to retcon this read um, as one of the, you know, possible uh, mm-hmm. e- evil reads from other dimensions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it really, you really feel like there's a point where in the early books, early issues where it's like, oh yeah, Reed Richards is the heart of this book. And then at a certain mm-hmm. point they're like, no, Thing is the heart of this book. Like yeah. we got it. And like everyone, and Reed suffers. They, or maybe they just realize like, oh, Reed's not that likable. And meanwhile, you got this, the ever-loving blue-eyed, you know, lug over here, you know? Yeah. And it, I thought it was funny that in this book, Thing is, every anytime Reed says anything, Thing is on his back, you know, making fun <laughs> of him. And in, the, in Starenko's book, Thing is constantly making fun of Reed. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, people just want to write this. It's like, it's, yeah. It must be so much fun. The Amazing Spider-Man number 53, Enter Dr. Octopus. This is written by Stan Lee, art by Jazzy John Romita, with Mickey DeMeo, who is Mike Esposito, uh, using his pen name so he doesn't get rattled by DC. Our story begins with Professor Warren inviting Peter Parker and a plus one to a science expo, and Pete invites Gwen, who we learn is also a science major. The main event of the expo is a new type of missile defense called a nullifier, which <laughs> it's just something that I feel like Stan will throw into any comic story yeah. if you can. Uh, <laughs> now, now it's not it's not the best version of this that we'll see. It's not what you would call an ultimate, <laughs> but 
Yeah. It's it's barely even a penultimate nullifier. It's like yeah. fairly low level as far as nullifiers are concerned, I feel. <laughs> the so-so nullifier. Um, <laughs> so uh, Dr. Octopus uh, is there to steal it. He pops up in the middle of the audience with a cloak, so nobody saw him, his arms, I guess. Like nobody uh, noticed. It's, it's weird enough that a man with a green cloak is in the middle of the science demonstration, <laughs> but nobody seems to notice anything as a mist he throws the cloak off and his arms are revealed. But. Right. He still has his weird goggle glasses and everything, but you know, yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, everyone just thought he was an eccentric rock star, I guess. Um, <laughs> <You know>. uh, <laughs> um, it, like, oh, one of the New York dolls has showed up for this. <laughs> <laughs> for this and science demonstration. Okay, sure. All right. He's really let himself go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's more like meatloaf or something. Um, so uh, in the, in the chaos, Peter changes into a uh, costume, does his normal slip away, uh, brawls with Doc Ock who makes his way to the rooftop. Doc Ock threatens a crowd of passerby by throwing the nullifier off of the rooftop. Um, it didn't, I mean, it doesn't seem that big, but, Doc Ock seems to think he has like an estimate of how many people he's going to kill with it when he throws it down to the street. Oh, he's run the numbers. Yeah. yeah. Um, he says which, dozens will be crushed. Dozens. Yeah. And it's like the size of an inkjet printer. Like yeah. it's not, it's like maybe two, maybe two people would be crushed, you know? Yeah. Maybe somebody's going to get hit by the toner cartridge, but that's about <laughs> it. Um, Doc so, has a, he has a high opinion of himself though. It's like <laughs> two becomes dozens in his head. Yeah. So uh, Spidey tags Ock with a spider tracer, uh, also sprays his face with um, a web. So he has to find his way back to his lab blind, which he can. Um, he's better as a blind person than Daredevil is when he's actually blind. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Spidey catches the nullifier. No one is no one is killed. No toner cartridges are expelled. Um, back at the coffee bean, Aunt May shows up to tell Peter that she and Anna Watson have decided to take in a border for some extra pin money. Which I I, I actually looked up. Do you know what pin money is, refers to? It, it's like small amounts of spending money that husbands would give their wives, uh, like a little bit of disposable income, a little pocket money, you know. Enough to buy pins with without having to, you know, okay the purchase with oh, the head of the household. Oh, that's okay. so yeah, gross. I yeah. yeah. I wish now that they'd put a little bit of extra, like, relevance in like they would sometimes do and she'd be like oh my great society checks haven't shown up yet i need a little bit extra extra pin money like every now and then stan would throw in something to be like mm, we, we're hip we know what's going on yeah i i read that and instantly just thought bowling because i you know grew up bowling so that's some kind of ingrained thing <laughs> it's my only real sport uh that i'm even adequate at uh yeah it's, it's the money she uses to gamble on bowling on rigged, <laughs> <laughs> rigged bowling matches. and gin rummy. Um, <laughs> um, so Aunt May assures him that they'll be very careful and insist on the very finest references. So uh, that nothing can go wrong there. When Ock returns to his hideout, he discovers the spider tracer uh, and lays a trap for Spidey, which is it, it is good to show Ock being that smart. Like he notices it decides to use it figures out what it is yeah it's not the smartest trap no that he's, uh, that he's no. ever set up but. <laughs> he builds an entire fake like lab dashboard um for his trap and i'm yeah. like why that just seems over you don't need to set up the full like lab scenario that is a decoy um, yeah and with right. a mannequin of himself and it's like <laughs> it shows like how dumb he thinks Spider-Man is that he's like, <laughs> Spider-Man will come in, not see that I'm not moving 
and assume it's me and he'll blow and I'll be able to blow him up. And like a mannequin will fool Spider-Man. It's like Spider-Man's you've met him a bunch of times. Like, you know, he's he knows some things like he's not going to and he has a spider sense. Like he anyway, it's and he it made all, a spider tracer that you found like he's obviously can engineer a spider <laughs> right. tracer. He's probably going to work this one out. Of- yeah, this is it's a real it's a real Home Alone style plan from Doc Ock. That, <laughs> yeah. like, I'll just set this up in front of the window, and Spider Man will think I'm at home and not come in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Spidey swings by later. Spider Sense tips him off. He chucks a web ball at the Doc Ock dummy because he figures it out, uh, and it triggers a huge explosion. Um, Ock thinks. Spider-Man is dead because he, you know, went into the trap. So because he can't imagine that Spider-Man could think of any other way to trip it. So right. now he can afford to lie low and bide his time. Um, and he, this is the, the weird part where he says, I must find a place of sanctuary. So innocent appearing so much above suspicion that no one would ever think that Dr. Octopus might be hidden there. And guess where he picks? This whole issue is just a setup for the idea of Dr. Octopus living in Aunt May's house. Yeah. Like, which I just like, I, I want to believe that Stan came up with that idea and then just decided to take the rest of the day off because <laughs> that is just the best setup. And this begins like, I mean, this is, this is not the first time Doc, uh, Ock and Aunt May have met. It was the Sinister Six annual where uh, Doc Ock kidnaps her. Um, he's like pouring a cup of tea with her mm -hmm. for her with the the arms and everything and she's utterly charmed by him and like can't (laughs) believe for a moment that he could possibly be the bad guy um so uh you know i i mean i just love the idea that stan didn't forget that and he's like that was comedy gold what's going to be even better is when they move in together yeah and then i want this to be a sitcom uh yeah yeah yeah. and down the road they wind up getting married (laughs) and yeah it's just or I don't know if they actually get married. I think they, they. I think they're on. They're they're on the verge of it. All I remember that issue is the cover yeah. where Spider Man is shooting away at the Bible because I guess if the priest can't see the words, he can't. And he goes with this ring, I the web, which is like <laughs> that's another one of those Modoc moments where it's like you're either in or you're out. Like you go with it, or oh, or you know yeah. what, this isn't for you. <laughs> there's there's often a debate about like you know who is Spider Man's greatest villain. A lot of folks think you know the Green Goblin. There's a contingent of folks who think it's Dr. Octopus. It's like, for me, it's a no brainer. It's like Doc Ock got real friendly with Aunt May. Like he's absolutely Spider-Man's greatest villain. The, every time Doc Ock and him fight, Doc Ock should be like, yeah, I hate your aunt. I hate <laughs> like we're, we were in, we did it together. We did, you know, I did it with your aunt. Right. And Spider-Man can't, has to leave at that point. Like there's no way, you know, yeah. like it's that, like, you know, you know, me and your aunt, you know, yeah. I know her real well. I know her <laughs> super well. Like I know her real well. And like Spider Man just has to has to go. Yeah, yeah. Drop his head, shuffle away, and be like, rob the bank, whatever. Okay. <laughs> just go ahead. Yeah. I don't need <laughs> this is, the uh this is not I'm a big fan of this era of Spider Man comics. Mm-hmm. I mean the first I don't know, it's like the first hundred issues of Spider Man or so you know, there's there's duds in there, but it's so strong mostly. But this is uh one of the weaker I think of those stories where it's just like, (laughs) there's the, the real, and the real strong stuff in it is Spider-Man is, is Peter with his friends and stuff where he's like, is Gwen into me? I don't, can't understand that. Why is Harry getting so, so jealous all of a sudden? Like, and that Gwen is, she's a character who like, when I came to comics, she'd been dead for a long time. And Mm -hmm. so I only knew her in retrospect and she was always presented as, because they had to build up 
Mary Jane, Gwen was always presented as like not that not that substantive. But mm-hmm. to see her here where she's like, oh, don't forget I'm a science major too. I know this stuff. Like there's something about seeing her as like a cool girl who's also a science major that is yeah. really exciting and they didn't pay it off that much. But mm-hmm. and yeah. uh but it's funny that even here Professor Warren seems like a creep. Like seem yes. and, and I don't think they had any plans to make him a villain at this point, but he still seems like a weird creep. Like Yep. Yeah, he's like like commenting because he he walks in on Peter, who has just come back into the school through like a, a skylight into the gymnasium and uh, and Peter hears someone coming in. It's Professor Warren. So he like scoots up the rope, um, like uh, the the climbing rope. And uh, Professor Warren's like, oh, Peter, wow, you're pretty agile. Looks like your undershirt's coming a little untucked there. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's the Spider-Man costume. And you're. it's like, I don't think Stan meant it to be as creepy as it is, but it's like professors shouldn't be talking about their young students agility and their underclothes <laughs> and like, then he's just, like hey why don't you come to this uh why don't you come to this off-campus event with me yeah, yeah. And, and when gwen shows up he's like oh uh, oh gwen too okay yeah sure all right okay like, <laughs> also there's no time you need to jump in my car uh everything yeah. about the setup for this now that we talk about it is creeping yeah. me out um yeah <laughs> does this handkerchief smell funny to you <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's all, it's a, and I, I mean, and our fears are borne out because, you know, he becomes the jackal and he's yeah. upset, but he's obsessed with Gwen, it turns yeah. out. Yeah. But right. like, what a diff, like, I don't know if it would have been more or less progressive for Miles Warren to be interested in Peter mm-hmm. because then he becomes a predatory gay man, which is not, a, which is a, not a great, which is not a good way to present it. <laughs> right, but, sure. But, uh. I don't but know. It would have been it's, a little bit more consistent. Yes, with, how he's much, with the yeah. way he's characterized. Yeah, yeah. There's, but the, when you look at this issue, it's one of those issues where you're like, okay, Spider-Man goes to this thing. Doctor Octopus goes to f- steal it. He immediately gives up on stealing it and goes away. And then mm. the the story, it's like a. I remember when a friend of mine saw the first Captain America movie, and he was like, the whole movie was just a setup for the last minute of the movie. Like <laughs> yeah. that's the movie I want to see. And I was like, I yeah. don't know what to tell you. Like, but uh, that's what this one felt like to me. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, I mean, obviously Stan just wanted to get to that last panel where it shows Doc Ock, like, showing up at Aunt May's door with the newspaper ad in his hands. Like, it's like, which is great, um, but it's like, yeah, you do have to put in a little bit more work. Yeah, uh, but even there. that, like, it's, you know, it's a John Romita book, so it looks great, and, like, oh, yeah. the colors from, from that era are really gorgeous. Like, there's mm-hmm. such, there's a, there's just, like, clean, bright colors and, like, Spider-Man's costume. There's just something about the way John Romita draws him and with the most, like, real bold red and blues without much color shading that, mm-hmm. like, is so... It's just so attractive to the yeah. eye, you know? So uh, even though there's not... He doesn't do that much, you know? It's still... Yeah, and there's yeah. the, the first page where he's in a web hammock outside the Bugle offices reading the Bugle about how bad he is and everyone at the Bugle offices is yelling at him out the window. And it's like, it's like that page is one of those pages where you're like, if you don't know the deal about Spider-Man, you know it after looking at this page. Like he is a guy who is sometimes just hanging out in his costume, getting yelled at by people who are irritated by him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, And and I hate to be a bummer, but um, enjoy these next few issues of Spider-Man because Ramita is only the Spider-Man artist for another four or five, maybe six issues. Um, and, and, uh, and then, um, Rob's favorite artist, uh, Don Heck takes over oh, man. Uh, for an extended run. So, and Larry Lieber comes back to write it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't happen. But, <laughs> that um, would be the, the, uh, the least dynamic duo. Um, 
Yeah, possibly. Yeah, but um, yeah, but no, Ramita is he's a treasure. Um, and uh, it, we talked about this on, on the episode we did with uh, with John Hodgman. I, I don't think I really fully appreciated how good Ramita was as the Spider-Man artist until, you know, kind of going back this time. And just he just defined the look of Spider-Man from when I was growing up. So it's like the Spider-Man I had on my sleeping bag or on my thermos was a John Ramita Spider-Man. It wasn't special to me mm-hmm. until I saw it in context. And it's like, oh, this is great. Like he he just took the book over from Steve Ditko and just took it in a different direction and did not miss a beat. In fact, like brought it up a couple levels from how Ditko kind of petered out at the end. Um, and there's and, the- yeah. Just. There's such a like um Ditko is such a unique like individual style, but mm. the there's just Ramita's I mean there's a reason they call him Jazzy John Ramita. I don't know if it's this reason, but I feel like his his stuff just feels like it's just so smooth and so yeah. like there's such a there's like a like a rhythm to it that yep. is really gorgeous and accessible and the opposite of jazz now that i think about it uh <laughs> maybe maybe the least smooth accessible jazz. music form <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but the, i think you're right it's like his his like he was the standard spider-man and so it's easy for him to get lost and not be noticed as that and i wonder if like i wonder if like mark bagley is that now or bagley mm. is that now because yeah. his stuff is what's on all the the merchandise pretty much yeah. um yeah. and there's just something about like it shows you how what a strong costume design it is that it's it should be super complicated. Like if you try to draw Spider-Man's costume, it can be really difficult because like the webs are hard to do right. And mm-hmm. the fact that it it's not full, it, that he has that kind of like cut out blue parts on his chest and on his yeah. arms. But then you look at it when it's done that one, you're like, oh, this is such a beautiful, like it's such a beautifully designed costume, uh, mm-hmm. even though. When you but when you draw it, you really have to pay attention to what you're doing, and John Romita yeah. makes it look so easy. And yeah. There's a reason he was Marvel's you know art director for so long, yeah. and would just like if they needed a costume design, not that he designed Spider Man's costume, but if they needed a costume design, they'd go to him. If they needed something fixed, they'd go to him. You know, I'm such a big fan of his and of John Romita Jr.'s as well, whose art yeah, has, has its own uh, kind of majesty to it. Although his mm-hmm. art uh, occasionally gets a little crazy, but you know, everybody's <laughs> does at some point or another. So, sure. Yeah. yeah. You just reminded me of that. Spider-Man was one of the things I obsessed over drawing when I was a kid. Um, like, I mean, I was drawing whatever Popeye and Garfield or something, just trying to, you know, draw cartoons, but I was also trying to draw Spider-Man and it was always uh, just a nightmare. And it would take, I would just obsessively draw it and work on his costume and realized also his costume it's easier to show movement if you can do it correctly to yes, show like yeah. mm-hmm. the, the folds and perspective of his arm using that pattern. But it's like, it is a challenging thing. And, and you're right. The Romina just makes it look simple. Like it's like yeah. watching somebody do ballet and then trying to do ballet and just, yeah. you know, you know, break or skateboarding or whatever. It's just yeah. like, that looks so graceful and easy. I'm going to give that a, I broke my leg. Um, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like you try to draw Spider-Man, like spacing the webs is on his costume is so difficult. And yeah, mm-hmm. and, and John Romita is just like it. it I mean, I, I know he put lots of hard work into it because he's an artist, but like uh, the it looks like he just tosses it off, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that smoothness that like when you're a kid, like I definitely went through my phases when I was younger. I mean, I was like, by the time I was really getting serious to comics, I was an adolescent and a teenager. But like where you're like the more lines the picture has, the better the art is. Like, <laughs> right, yep. right. And I look at, I was rereading some of Todd McFarlane's issues of Amazing Spider-Man recently, and I was like, 
some of the characters are so off model at different times and like they and it's but at the time I was like, oh, all the rendering. I love it. And it's easy to yeah. dismiss John Romita's because it's so simple. And you look at it and you're like, oh, these shapes are so beautiful, you know? Yes. Yeah. 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 He doesn't Can't need deal? all of the I mean, I do that when I when I create something. I I do all this extra work because I feel like I'm trying to make up for whatever I missed in the core of it. And he mm-hmm. just has the core, you know, and it's and Kirby's sort of both things. He's yeah, the core is solid. And he's going to put every bit of ornate insanity on this page too. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like there's a uh, there's the thing you say about uh, artists where it's like you have to know the rules to break the rules, and it's like Ramita knows the rules. He doesn't really break them. Kirby knows them and breaks them all the time. But you know that he knows what he's doing. Yeah. But uh, it's like every time I watch baseball with my son, I don't really understand. I love watching baseball, but I don't really understand it. And so mm-hmm. anytime a play happens, I go. Strong fundamentals. There's all strong <laughs> fundamentals. And like, that's what Ramita is. It's like the strongest fundamentals, you know? Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah. Defined it. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings us to the end of our, our comics for the month. Uh, so that only leaves uh, our panels of the month uh, to talk about. So um, these are the panels that uh, jumped out at us for whatever reason, good, bad, or other. So uh, I will go ahead and kick things off. The The panel that I've got is from uh, Fantastic Four number 67. It's uh, page 10, panel one and only. This is when uh, Alicia is approaching Him's Cocoon, and we get our first glimpse of it. Um, this thing, I talked a little bit about it when we were talking about the issue, but uh, it is just so otherworldly and creepy. And to describe it, if, if you're not looking at it, uh, it sort of looks like a guy standing up in a head-to-toe sleeping bag. But the where the face should be is just this glowing, swirling cosmos. Um, there's these little stubby tentacles lining the perimeter, which, you know, as we mentioned earlier, Matt Fraction always thought was a rack of ribs. A rack of ribs that is like eight feet tall. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like if the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland was a rack of ribs. Like that's yes, what it always looks like. That's right. basically <laughs> it. I can't describe it better than that. And you've got Alicia framed by fire in the background. The rest of the background is just blue cavern walls, and she's reaching up to touch him, but she hasn't made contact yet, and we're frozen in this moment where we know what him looks like, but she doesn't know yet. And we don't know how she's going to respond. And there's just it's the, the whole image is holding a ton of tension. Um, and I just really love it. It's really haunting and creepy and, and wonderful. So, yeah, it's it, it was definitely going to be my panel till I got to notes and saw that Brian had stolen it once again yeah. for the four millionth <laughs> time. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I decided to go with uh, something I mentioned earlier that it's not something we covered in depth, but Avengers number 44, I opened it up and page one, panel one, a big splash page. And I was, I was like, I'm so surprised to see this improvement in, in Don Hell's art. Um, (laughs) And then I, cause I really thought that cause he's just been every Avengers thing is Don Heck all the time. So then I realized it was John Bushima and I was, I just enjoyed every single panel of that book um, and just savored it because I'm like, I don't know if he's, he, he, he only pops up every once in a while and he did some cool Hulk stuff. Um, but he's usually just doing layouts or something else. So um, the images of, of, widow and Hawkeye trapped in tubes in a lab and they're in the foreground and uh, the red guardian is standing there just mocking them, but everything about the shadows and the figures and the placement and the perspective just is solid. And I just didn't expect it when I opened the adventures thing. So it caught me (laughs) so unaware that I was uh, 
enthralled by that book. Elliot, did you, uh, did anything jump out at you this month? So I was uh, almost going to do that big splash panel of Alicia and the caterpillar ribs, uh, (laughs) the the cocoon, which I'm glad, so I'm glad that you picked that. I had a runner up besides that, which was, there's a panel in the amazing Spider-Man story where it's just seen from below Spider-Man crawling up a wall after Doc Octopus who's on that, who's coming over the top of a building and Spider-Man is reaching. And there was just something about the way it was framed that felt like, yeah, if you were standing there, that's what it would look like. Like, that's what, this is the closest I'm going to get until Marvel's of like what it would be like to be standing on the sidewalk watching this happen. But I just can't get over this. The panel I was talking about in Fantastic Four on page eight, where it's just thing, just getting into a chair at the kitchen table. And just like the, there's a very kind of stiff Crystal and Johnny in that image. But my eye is just drawn to how Thing looks like a guy who is re- has the weight of the world on his shoulders and is sitting down and like just the character acting on that page, but especially that that moment. I'm just like, well, if an artist can make me excited about the hero of the book sitting down at his kitchen table in a chair, then that has to be my panel pick. Like I can't. You <laughs> right, know, it's yeah. easy to make me excited about uh, a woman in a spacesuit in a cavern encountering a space cocoon, but <laughs> a guy sitting down at a table, if he can get that from me, then. Yeah, then, uh, that that has to be my recommend my pick. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, that series, those four of him sitting down and then holding his head and then talking about how he probably can't eat anything and then just shoving, you know, a pile of wheat cakes in his face, <laughs> uh, like a big <laughs> pile. Yeah, it's also human. It's it's great. Well, those are our panels of the month. Um, and then uh, something we wanted to start doing uh, this season um, was uh, make some recommendations for some other comics uh, that we've been reading, maybe recently, maybe not. It's a, a little concept that uh, I'm sure no other podcast uh, ends their <laughs> uh, episodes with. So this is a totally original creation. And just um, not, yeah, no comment. No comment yeah. at all. Just, <laughs> uh, we invented recommending things. <laughs> That's but, the flop, uh, what the Flophouse does, but anyway, yeah. all right, okay. Okay, well, I, I figured, you know, if, if we kick this off while you were on the show, then, you know, maybe we could skate by, so. Um, <laughs> Without fair. the lawyers so, yep. flying in, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, something that I have been, I, I read recently, like very recently, just a few days ago, was uh, The Shadow 1941, Hitler's Astrologer, um, by Dennis O'Neill, uh, Mike Kaluta, and Russ Heath. Um, this was one of those uh, Marvel graphic novels uh, from 1988, um, back when graphic novels could be 60 pages long, and uh, it was just uh, it, it, it's uh, like like this month's uh, Strange Tales. Uh, it was a revival of a somewhat problematic uh, pulp character, although you know I think Yellow Claw has aged a lot more poorly than you know the shadow has but you know denny o'neill uh was both a really good two-fisted storyteller um and he's also a liberal pinko like the rest of us so uh it feels very (laughs) of its time uh in the ways that we we want to carry forward um but not so much in the ways that we want to leave in the past so um if you can track down a copy i i purchased it off of ebay shortly after denny passed because i there's just some Denny O'Neill stuff I had never read and I wanted to track it down. Um, so I finally got around to reading it and I can highly recommend it. Excellent. Um, well, I was reminded in this uh, Avengers annual of the this giant, the full roster of Avengers all showing up at once. I, I started to run through my arguments with my brother about who should be on the Avengers at some point, And then everyone who's ever been on the Avengers. So the hero teams ha- that the Avengers become just like 
almost anybody has been on the team at some point. Um, one of the more recent weird teams I enjoyed was the Uncanny Avengers in volume three of that with uh, Jerry Duggan, Pepe Larraz, and David Curiel. Um, the, the run started in December of 2016. Um, it's sort of the unfortunate byproduct of a number of full Marvel crossover kinds of things. Um, but this is a, it has a, the Avengers unity division with Wasp Rogue, Deadpool, Synapse, Human Torch, Cable, Quicksilver, and Dr. Voodoo as a team. So it's just like, <laughs> I don't know, just roll the bingo things and pull out what happens. And, and Captain America is running the show. But the main thing about that run is Deadpool and Cap's interactions are so worth it for me there. It's just Deadpool sort of becomes more of a real character and Cap has to deal with Deadpool. Uh, and they're the, the moral characters of both of those, uh, uh, just clashing is a, it's a really fun piece. Like I don't really care much about most of the other characters, but, uh, <laughs> but those two and their interactions is so great. It wasn't Dr. Voodoo that brought you to the book. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. And I, I'm not a big fan of rogue, even though I've, you know, read X-Men since I was a kid the bad voice acting on the pinball machine of rogue is a, uh, is another sore spot for me. Um, and what does she say? Like nice shot, Shugs, like that kind of stuff or. Yeah. She says, uh, now I got to try all their powers and it's bad enough having one of you running around in my head when she's I, just, just weird <laughs> things. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And why is this on here? And it sounds like it's, it sounds like me doing just some weird Southern accent. Like no. I love that the pinball voice, you need to know the continuity of that character. Like yeah, uh, any anyone who's just approaching it at a bar is like, I don't know what that, I don't understand what this pinball machine is telling me right now. This, this, the, I do recommend the pinball machine for people who know comics. This, the specific X-Men pinball machine, all of the stories are based on the comics. So if you like hit Professor X and then he's like, Cerebro has found a mutant. And then you have to figure out there's like a little silhouette of a head and you can go like, oh, I think that's Jubilee. And then you hit Wolverine and you get, you win. And so having inside knowledge helps you in that pinball machine. Oh, but I so, could go. So Rob, Rob's recommendation is the X-Men pinball machine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, just go play the X-Men pinball machine. I mean, w- there's not a problem with just going into a bar and playing pinball right now. Is there anybody? Oh, perfect no. time. Yeah. Perfect time okay. to do it. Yeah. Never a better time. <laughs> Uh, Elliot, do you have uh, anything to recommend to our listeners? I've got so many recommendations because I figured I'd make up for the, all the episodes where you didn't recommend anything. Uh, <laughs> and I have one self-serving recommendation. Uh, Excellent. In terms of Marvel, for Marvel readers, there was an Ant-Man series just this year by uh, Zeb Wells and Dylan Burnett. That uh, It's one of those ones where I'm like, I have Marvel Unlimited. I'll read whatever comes up. And it turned, into, turned out to just be a five-issue series, and it was – really a fun series and the art in it looks gorgeous you know um the uh for superhero fans who don't want to read marvel books uh a a series that i haven't read in a while but has always held a special place in my heart is jack staff by paul grist which is a super just like fun like he creates his own little like british comic book character universe and the art is gorgeous his page layouts are really fun and it's 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 all collected. It's all available, I think. So it's that's a fun book for non-superhero fans. Uh, if they haven't read Kaiju Max by Xander Cannon, that is just a genius book about a 
maximum security prison for giant monsters. And it man he manages to take what should be like a joke premise and turn it into like just a super heartbreaking book, just like a book about being in prison and how what you know, there are certain people who are marked to be thrown into prison and certain people who can't ever get away from it and the kind of impossibility of, of changing your life. And, but it is about giant monsters. So like there are giant monster jokes in it, but it's just a great <laughs> book. And my self-serving recommendation is, Hey, I have a new book out. I have a new hey. children's picture book. It's not technically a comic book, but it's like pictures with word balloons. So like, yeah, I'll, let's call it a comic book. That and that's called Sharko and Hippo. Uh, it's a book about a shark and a hippo who are friends. They're going to go fishing the shark keeps asking the hippo for things to go fishing with, and the hippo keeps giving him the wrong things that sound like what he's asking for, but it is not what he's asking for. <laughs> and uh, it just came out in the fall of 2020, and so it's in bookstores now. Please uh, order it through your local independent bookstore. It's called Sharko and Hippo by me, Ellie Kalin, and I should mention the illustrations are by Andrea Tsurumi, who is a fantastic uh, illustrator and artist. Right on. Well, I— I mentioned this uh, before we started recording, but I have a couple copies on the way, uh, one of whom is going to uh, my seven-year-old son uh, for Christmas. He does not know that yet, but he is a huge fan of Horse Meets Dog, uh, your first kid's book, um, and it was the first book uh, he was able to read on his own. So um, he is a big fan, and I'm sure he's going to love it. That's so – like that's such a – you're, you're saying that before, and it's like such such a special thing to be someone's first like book that they can read themselves. And like, that's a book you feel ownership over. And it just, mm-hmm. I feel really touched and honored that my book was the one that he had that experience with. So, yeah. uh, I hope he likes the second one. I don't want him to be like, this guy peaked with his first <laughs> one. Sophomore slump. <laughs> oh, Matrix <laughs> two over here. Yeah. Oh, like, <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, Elliot Kalen, uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, and for agreeing to be our new best friend. Um, uh, is there anything um, else that we can uh, plug okay, for you? I guess. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the big, so Sharko and Hippo and Horse Meets Dog are the big things. They're in bookstores now. Uh, the Flophouse podcast is my long-running bad movie podcast that if you want to hear crazy nonsense, that's that's the place to go. We recently had a, uh, a mini episode because we alternate between mini episodes and episodes where we talk about specific movies where I was I spent 40 minutes in the part of Tom Broca talking about Dune. So if that's the kind of thing you enjoy, and I don't I don't know why it would be, uh, please give the podcast a listen on the Maximum Fun Network. Um, there's a I did another podcast with John Hodgman there called I Podius, where we recapped the 1976 British miniseries I Claudius. And if you have seen the show, uh, it's a great listen. If you haven't seen I Claudius, I think you should still listen to it and mm-hmm. it'll inspire you to watch that show, which is an amazing show. And I don't know. If you if, if you ever if you ever come across a comic book with my name on it, go ahead and buy it. Hope you'll uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it. And, you you are searchable in uh, Marvel Unlimited. So. Oh yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that was very exciting. Uh, and yeah. oh, and actually, in I think February of 2021, I have a series coming out from Aftershock Comics called Maniac of New York, which is basically me trying to make good on the wasted potential of of uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. So it's like. I want to do a story where it's like The Wire, but instead of drugs, they're going after uh, like a masked Im- immortal killer that cannot be stopped and is just slashing his way through New York. So that'll be coming out, uh, I think, in, in G- either January or February of next year. It's called Maniac of New York. That's enough stuff to plug, right? Like that's, that's plenty of stuff. <laughs> that's pretty great. And it's 
I mean, all the stuff I'm familiar with is excellent. So I'm going to recommend all of that uh, unreservedly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And Appreciate not it. to yeah. mention, you know, your work on Mystery Science Theater 3000, which, uh, you know, Brian and I were both kickstarter backers and oh thank uh, you very much for paying me because yeah. that's that's why the, <laughs> the uh, like that was uh mystery for years and years people would ask me if you could work on any show what would it be and i would say mystery science theater 2000 yeah and to get the opportunity to actually to do that to work really closely with joel who's been a hero of mine for a long time and to like to work with Patton and felicia and and hampton and baron and I guess that's it. That's the whole, that's the whole cast, right? And yeah. Jonah. Cause and Jonah's he's great. crying. Yeah. Like, uh. no, and one of the, one of the, and like what it was, it was a really fantastic experience. And I'm so glad I got to do it. And like, one of the best things about it is that I met Jonah Ray through it. And like, he's someone that is just a great person. So, yeah. but, uh, but I like to, I still like to give him the business, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember, uh, going back and listening to uh, a flop house bonus episode, uh, from before you got the gig and, you, I think you were answering listener mail and uncharacteristically, you gave a very straight and sincere answer to like, <laughs> if you could do any, you know, if you could have any job, what would it be? And you're like, you know what? I'm not even gonna be clever here. I'd love to write mystery science theater. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I think you even mentioned something to the fact that it's like, well, you know, I was born too later. I was, you know, I grew up in the wrong place to have done this. And then, and then you did it. It's like, you called your shot. That's incredible. It's amazing. I managed to, I've been, you know, I'm not going to wood. I've been super lucky in my life that, a lot of the things that I've wanted to accomplish when I was 12 or 13 or 14, I've managed to accomplish. And mm-hmm. I just have a few things I need to check off. And then I'll have to, I guess my work on this earth will be done. And yep. <laughs> I'll be able to finally to ascend to to whatever the next level is. But uh, but that was, that was one of, like to write for, to write for Mystery Science Theater and to write for Spider-Man and to write for Jon Stewart and to like, these are all like, if I can get, unfortunately, the Marx Brothers are all dead, and Zeppo is broke anyway because of that gin rummy thing. But uh, <laughs> if if I can somehow if I can somehow write for Bugs Bunny, then I'll basically have checked all the boxes, and I'll be like, oh, I've got to do like a new thing now. This is terrifying. <laughs> right, you got to have to have new goals instead of just coasting on all those simple, simple goals. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'll do our little outro housekeeping here. Uh, Apple Podcast Reviews, uh, we are still collecting those. If anyone would like to uh, leave us a five-star review uh, on that or any podcast service uh, that you use that handles reviews, uh, leave us one of those. And if you send a screenshot to marvelbythemonth at gmail.com with your mailing address, we'll put some goodies in the mail for you. Um, follow us on Instagram at Marvel by the month and, uh, Marvel by the month.com has links to our other social channels as well as our shop, uh, where you can get the stay inside and read comics engraved on Mjolnir t-shirt that Rob designed. And I think that's it. Rob, is there anything else you wanted to shout out? Yeah. If, if things went right and you, Brian, you might have to cut this, but if things <laughs> went right, then you just heard the 1967 version of the theme song before this show started and you may be even hearing it running right now. Um, so tell us how much you hate it. Um, and, uh, and I'll cry for a while and we'll put the old one back. We're probably not going to do that. I'm going to keep writing new versions of the song. So you're going to have to get used to these new, um, the, uh, you know, they reference the historical period in which we're, um, with rock and roll with which we're covering in the comics. So, um, I hope you loved it. But I do want to hear if you hated it just because it's fun. Um, (laughs) He feeds on your anger. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's all. I just, yeah, I've been working on it very hard and, uh, it's a, it's a lot of crazy references to, to Beatles and, and other, um, pieces. And it's very different than the original theme, which we all have enjoyed so much, but, um, yeah, so I'm excited. And, and I've said before, if you ever get a crazy idea for a podcast, um, the best thing you can do is just find someone who will do it with you, who is uh, just phenomenally talented in a bunch of different ways. Uh, so he can pick up all of your slack and, and just polish that. Um, so, yeah, I can't write notes, man. I can't keep notes, uh, but I can write music notes. So that helps. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take them. You had one right. note. You lost one note. It's, a, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Elliot, thanks again for joining us. Um, And uh, until next week, my name is Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Uh, Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics. Mm